You are listening to the Edu Salon podcast, a space for connection and conversation around education. Each episode, Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky talks with a global education thought leader to provide insights into where education is now and where it might move next. Hello, and welcome to the Edu Salon podcast, recorded on the lands of the Wajuk people of the Noongar Nation, to whose elders, past, present, and emerging, I pay my respects. My name is Deborah Netalitsky, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Adam Voigt. Adam began his career as a teacher and then principal in some of Australia's most challenging locations, including remote Aboriginal communities. He was appointed to his first principalship at 35 years of age and later opened a new primary school in Darwin as its inaugural principal. He is CEO and founder of Real Schools, a business that partners with schools in order to develop their culture, capacity and performance. And he's author of Restoring Teaching, How Working Restoratively Unleashes the Teacher Within, a book dedicated to bringing practices that work into the hands of teachers. He's a strong advocate for educators and a commentator on education in the Australian media, including for Channel 10 News and Current Affairs show, The Project. Welcome, Adam. Hi, Deb. Thanks for having me. I'm very pleased to have you. So let's start this conversation. Uh, I've been reading Restoring Teaching and obviously restorative practices is an area of expertise and interest and passion for you. But if I think about it, lots of educators and schools would use those terms, restorative practices, restorative justice, but perhaps mean different things when they say them or apply them in in a range of different ways or with different levels of precision, I suppose. Mm. So I'm wondering what it is that you mean when you're referring to a restorative approach in schools and why it's important that we think about it. Yeah, we actually felt a need to distinguish that. So some of the old stuff about practising restoratively and to give that um, even a new label. So we we call our approach to restorative practices RP 2.0, just to show people that what we think we've done is take the elements of restorative practices that kind of sit really closely to people's purpose and the reason they got into education in the first place and then applied to a contemporary school environment, which is really busy, which is time poor and which has some imperatives and compliances that sit outside, say, the way that it's been used in juvenile diversion in the past. So we don't refer to restorative justice. We do refer to restorative practices. But what we're really talking about is make some really simple uh, low investment changes in language, some really simple low investment changes in the way that we approach conflict and wrongdoing in the school, some simple changes to the way we approach our pedagogy, and then maybe just challenge a few of the things that we've thought were true about the way schools should operate or the way that young people uh, learn to socialise and perhaps learn some new ways of working. And if we can do those really low investment things with the potential to have a high return, then we get the sort of results that we get with our partner schools and that's pretty cool to watch. So can you talk me through what that looks like? Certainly when I've done a lot of work in staff development, staff culture, coaching, and for me, if I think about, I think Rachel Lofthouse calls it semantic space, like the the way we talk around here is an indication for me, the way people talk in a staff room, the way they talk about their practice. You know, so that idea of language for me is really important because it reflects our culture and our beliefs and how we do things. Uh, So you talked about language and pedagogy and that notion of sort of a bang for buck, high return in a busy and time poor place. So what are some of the things that that would look like in a school? 
Yeah, so we in a restorative model, we speak to what we call affective language. So it's not effective, it's affective. And really, it's a, an incredibly simple and easy thing for a, um, any adult in a school to do, which is to basically say what you're already going to say, but chuck in a feelings word. And for instance, if a student were to drop a piece of rubbish in a school, uh, my old default would be to say, hey, pick that up. You know, and I'm sure most of us share that default somewhere in our history. You know, I've had to work on it a little bit and change my accent on my voice, the way that I speak. But generally what I will what will roll off my tongue now in a school that I'm wandering around in is, hey, it disappoints me to see you do that, but chuck it in the bin, eh? So it's really colloquial, really informal, but the word that most people hear in that sentence louder than any is disappointed. This enacts both the neocortex, the language centre of our brain, and the limbic system, the emotional centre of our brain, which means that some good deep learning happens even in that really quick interaction. It arms kids to be able to navigate a social system when they can tell what both disappoints and delights others as a result of their choices. And it also just slightly increases the odds that that kid will pick up the rubbish. And there's no guarantees in education, no guarantees in in teaching, particularly in in challenging schools. You do the best you can. You tilt the odds in your favour as far as you possibly can and you hope for the best. And we find the most powerful tool you can use for that is your language. And I I kind of learned that from um, my first principalship where I had, uh, I was so lucky, had an Australian of the Year who um, Mandawar Unipingu, who was um, married to one of my staff members, and he was getting dialysis treatment in Darwin and would sit in my office in between and we would discuss language and culture. And I put to him one day that I reckon language is an input and an output of culture. And he fi- said, you're finally kind of getting it. <laughs> and um, and he said that the language we use, that the elders, that the leaders of a, of a, of a culture use, paints and kind of shapes the kids that grow in it and they leave speaking that way as a result. So really emphasised to me that leaders of any culture need to be really cognisant of the words they speak and really cognisant of how they speak. And indeed, if you're looking to transform or enhance the culture of something, you can't do it without changing your words. So that's how how big language is to us in our model. And so you're talking about affective language, the language that names emotions. And I'm assuming that you kind of need this to be a whole school approach because you need that collective accountability and that collective pressure where everyone's using that kind of language. It's not, you know, three school leaders who are being, you know, disappointed or expressing their feelings as they walk past. So how do you ensure that this permeates through a school community rather than is something that you kind of wheel out and everyone forgets about and goes back to their normal ways of talking and being? We point that out in our training that um, it is the easiest way to step into a restorative model is to just start to use the effective language, but it's the first thing that people forget. And because we've over-formalised so much of the way we approach schools in that we, you know, if we want practice to change, we'll change a policy, but not really look at the practice, we've got the policy right. And schools should put in policy that, you know, particularly if you're a restorative school, that we deal with all low-level behaviours of a positive and a negative nature with effective language, but that won't change the way people speak. So you've got to have fun. It's got to be your your commitment to it is entirely informal. So we have games like effective word tennis where we encourage it's an exit ticket from a staff meeting where two staff members have got to get across each other and hit a pretend tennis ball across the net with an effective word. And um, if you take more than two seconds or if you repeat a word in the rally, you're lost, 15 love. And that builds our emotional vocab 
And that means that we're not just wandering around saying happy, sad, angry. It's a frustration of so many teachers that I meet that kids in year 10 have no more than three words to describe the way they're feeling. But I've got teachers that we work with in year one and two who use a different effective word every week. And their kids' emotional vocab gets bigger by 40 words in one year. And they're capable of doing it. If we add add to that every year, the sophistication gets higher. The ability to kind of socially and emotionally get to the top of Bloom's taxonomy, to not just know words, but actually use them, apply them, increases. And teachers just find that they have to deal with far, far less poor choices as a result because the kids can predict the results of their own behaviour. Fun sounds like the opposite of policy writing to me. It is. I've written my fair share of policies and it's it's not fun. It's the opposite of fun. Uh, But you talked about the building that language of affective, almost the understanding and sophistication of people's own self-reflections about their emotions, both students and staff in a school that's thinking about restorative practices. And you also talked, though, earlier about that schools are time poor. So, but surely you have to carve out some time if in order to make this approach work. Yeah. So, well, I mean, the great part for me is because this is one of the, the kind of, um, I don't know, little unspoken truths, you know, that we, that we know in education is that because we're formalising things a lot, we're making an assumption that most of the interactions in a school community are formal and they're not. They're infor- most of them are informal. So at the informal end of the, the continuum between, say, informal and formal, the first end is just for the vast majority, drop an effective word like a smoke bomb, walk off. But there is a next level, you know, and we call that level an effective interaction. But really what it means is when a teacher radar goes that says that's worth a chat, um, that we know what, we're, that, what that chat looks like. And it chiefly works like going past, present, future as quick as you can. So within a minute or two, we want, we want teachers to be able to say, hey, what's the story with not starting your work? And the kids might come back with, oh, it's just being lazy. You know, and we might sometimes berate them for being lazy. Well, the, well, the, the truth is they just told us the truth. That's what was going on. You know, and then ask them to think things like, well, how do you think it impacts you know, your learning, me, other people? Oh, I don't know. You look a bit frustrated. Yeah, you're right. You know, what do you reckon you can do about that? Oh, I, I should start my work. And we, we encourage teachers to, in that conversation, stare at the kids one more time. You know, you have, sometimes you've got to stare and wait. We're not very good with silence as teachers. But if we, um, and the kids know, so they play that against us. Um, but if we can enjoy that silence and embrace that, and if we can get to the end of that conversation, that pen gets picked up and it hits the page, we then get to thank and congratulate kids for cleaning up their, their own little mess in that situation. The good part is that if that can be the norm for my classroom, that if it's worth a chat, teacher's either going to pull me aside, stand next to me, come and sit next to me and say, hey, what's the story here? How do you think that's impacting people? What are you going to do? Is that most of the time I find that if it's worth a chat in my classroom, I pull a chair up next to a kid, they go, all right, all right, all right, and pick up the pen and it's the page. And I get to thank and congratulate them more quickly. They don't need to lie in that model. They don't need to blame other people. They don't need to just make stuff up or turn on themselves. It's just, let's get to the bit where we thank and congratulate you for fixing the problem really fast. And even just with those two strategies, we grab a huge proportion of the interactions that happen in a school. And when you get that bit right, then I think that you're, you're, you're stepping towards changing culture. And so you've also got that silence is really important in that you're asking the other person to step in and 
come up with their solution here as well and move forward rather than you providing all the answers, which I think is something that teachers have as a bit of a uh, the way that we are sometimes as opposed to what's actually useful for our students, which is for them to step in rather than for us to be solving. Yeah. Um, but are there times when a restorative approach isn't appropriate? Like are there times when something is either serious or has gotten to a point or a number of conversations have happened and you say, okay, we need to move now from this do you either escalate the restorative approach or do you say, right, we need a different approach here? Are there times where it's not the thing, not the answer? Yes. So we, we talk about the fact that uh, consequences and punishments in a, in a robust restorative model um, can be applied consistently as well. And we talk to the fact that now school partner schools have a little flyer, that the little one pager on this, so they can be guided and not be drawn into skipping over into the punitive model just because they got a little bit emotional or upset about it. But there are three circumstances. Number one is where there's an assessment by a leader or a teacher that the harm is extreme or severe. And it's the sort of harm that just takes people, that people need a bit of time for to be able to do the restorative stuff right. So a suspension can be appropriate there where going and dealing with the situation straight away is a recipe for disaster. And if a school leader makes that call, I fully respect it. The difference is that we, we make that decision based on an assessment of the harm and not the incident. We can sometimes say things like, well, for instance, punching is a level three behaviour and that's a one day suspension. But the truth is that there's punching and there's punching. And there's different levels of harm that come with that. There can be the sort of punch that really harms someone. And there can be the sort of punch that's a little tap on the shoulder that says, ha my team got your team on the weekend. And we just got to hope that that's not a kid who's going to go, oh, that's a level three behaviour. You're, you know, you're gone. You know, people hack these formal systems based around incident. Circumstance two, in which punishments or consequences apply, is when it's been negotiated in advance so if you've got a student who you know has a particular behaviour working on, label that behaviour together. Let's work on this behaviour. Time it. So over the next, say, three weeks, if you were to demonstrate this behaviour, what do you think would be a reasonable consequence? Get that formalised in a piece of paper. And then all you have to do as a teacher is either celebrate that they get through the three weeks, make sure you do that if they do, or follow through on what they agreed. And then the third circumstance is when it's the student's choice. So I get students who say, I'm not doing your stupid feelings questions. No worries. Um, I'll pop two post-it notes in front of you. One says, we go for a walk. You and me, we've got a teacher and we've got two students to talk to to fix things up from the blow up you had. Take about 15 minutes. The other post-it note says, you're going to miss the next three lunchtimes and I have to let your mum know. I'll be back in 10 minutes. Tell me which one we're doing. And my record is a, a child who chose the, the punitive approach seven times in a row. And sometimes, sometimes people tell me that the restorative stuff is too soft. Well, why is that student choosing punishment? It's because the other, the other choice is hard. It's challenging. It's difficult. It's the bit where you learn. It's the bit where you're confronted with the true impact of your behaviours. Seeing off detentions and an angry mum for some of these kids is way too easy. They're too used to it and they don't learn from it. We've got to play the long game and, and inch them towards that choice because once they cross that bridge and realise it's not so bad, nobody bleeds <laughs> you know, when you go and make amends in person, they don't go back. So there's empowerment and learning and facing up to your behaviours in this approach and also there's an element of choice 
for the person as well, even though the choice is not to do nothing. The choice is to choose which way you're going to deal with your behaviours. And there's sort of a positive presupposition there about the fact that they will own up to that, that they will do something, but that something is expected. I talk a lot about high expectations, high care and high challenge, and it sounds like that restorative approach is about bringing those two things together, care and challenge. And we we only frame it in slightly different language. You know, we we say that if if every teacher were to think about the teacher that they had the most regard for and that they tried the hardest for at school and bring a picture up in their their mind about that, we often ask them, would you describe that teacher as being firm and fair? You know, it's a really old truism. You know, did they have really high expectations of you? Um, And did they support you like crazy so you might reach them? Yes, they did. And so it's just saying, how can we take that little catchphrase of firm and fair and actually use it to examine our practice? And you you brought up pedagogy earlier. Uh, I once had pedagogy in my job title. No one ever knew what it meant, but (laughs) so we can talk about it as teaching. But... um, You've also talked and written about the importance of student engagement and the connection between engagement and the learning piece, so not just the behavioural piece. And I've been reading the new book by Dennis Shirley and Andy Hargraves called Five Paths of Student Engagement, and they call engagement the new frontier of student achievement, so they make that connection about between achievement and engagement. And they also call it a battle. They call it a battle for the hearts and minds of all of our students, especially the most vulnerable and marginalised. And I know you've worked with, you know, some significantly challenging communities or challenged and also a battle against standardised testing and digital distractions. And I know you've probably got some views on standardised testing as well, but what's your view about how the teaching part dovetails with the behaviour part, that yeah. engagement, learning, behaviour? How does that, that's got to be part of it, right? Yeah, I, I- I contend that most of the behaviours that teachers deal with in a classroom that they'd rather not are probably either the result of shame, which means it's a young person who's failing or thinks they're going to fail in the classroom because they have previously. That's really hard for teachers who get them 10 years into their education journey and they do everything right, but they've already convinced themselves that classrooms are places where they fail. And so the shame response is nearly always negative. You know, you can respond positively, but it's, it's that takes some learning. Or they are behaving poorly because they're disengaged. And so I think that the the right definition of engagement, and there are obviously enormous books written about engagement in the the classroom, but for me, engagement is just a young person who's listening, speaking, thinking or doing. If they are, then they're, they're activated and that's awesome, which means that the opposite, the enemy of engagement is for me, waiting. Any time that a young person is waiting to listen, speak, think or do, then they're going to probably choose a behaviour that fills that vacuum. If you think about us, when we go to a, a doctor's surgery, they've got a, I've got a waiting room. They're telling you you're going to wait. You know? And there's a New Idea magazine on the table from 1987 and there's a broken television. You know, we, are, we ask ourselves, how long is it until we pull our phone out? You know, so we will fill the waiting void with a behaviour. And in the classroom, the, the high likelihood is that the kids will fill that, that, that void with a behaviour we'd rather not see. So the reason from a pedagogical point of view that we advocate strongly for the, the use of circles, for instance, artfully deployed so that the kids are listening, speaking, thinking or doing as often as they possibly can for the highest percentage of time as they possibly can, is chiefly because it reduces disengagement. And while the kids engage, you'll have to deal with less of the things that you'd rather not. 
if teachers can get that in sort of in place as a first piece, it's either a shame response or it's a disengagement response. Then solutions start to appear. And some of them, if we're prepared to make some changes in our pedagogy, can really make our lives a lot easier. I think the one interesting reflection I'm having as you're talking is about the way that online and remote learning has impacted our, how we think about engagement. It's it's often that teachers will think about the child who volunteers in class to speak or is obviously working as engaged. I think engagement it was all of a sudden, what does actually engaging look like? How do you know if a child is doing the listening and thinking piece? And and if a child is on a is on a team school or is sitting in a classroom, are they engaged or are they just there? Are they just complying with the fact that they are expected to be in a particular place and time? So I think engagement sometimes I think teachers have viewed it as someone complying with the expectations of the classroom environment rather than actually are these students doing the thinking uh, and the listening and the work, the cognitive work, and that's harder to, to see. It is, and that's where it's harder to see, particularly if the classroom pedagog- if the classroom architecture lends itself to being able to hide. So I talk a lot to uh, primary teachers about, for instance, the use of the clump, you know, the clump of students on the floor and listening to a teacher in an authoritarian position, either standing or on a chair. I think they call that mat time, don't they? Yeah. The clump. And, and they don't call it clump. <laughs> I get it, but they are. They're in a clump, you know. And I often ask people, if you wanted to hide, if, for instance, if, you, if you're a student who wants to answer a question, where do the kids sit who want to answer a question? And they're front and centre. They're right under the teacher's feet. Where are the kids sitting who most need to answer a question? They're at the edges and the back because they're trying to hide. You know, whereas if they could actually just adopt some really simple circle architecture to do that instruction or to do that synthesis of a bit of a, a bit of curriculum that they really want everyone to be able to get their heads around, it's hard to hide in a circle. There are no special places. So changing the architecture of our classroom is a great way to get those kids who are actively looking to disengage, actively looking to hide, to avoid the potential that you might ask me a question that I won't know, I will look stupid and I will be in shame. That architecture is a great place to start in terms of being able to get those kids involved and to just set them up to have a better chance of succeeding when they, when they do go back to their tables. So you've actually got some quite simple things that you've talked about as we've been talking now about placement of furniture and students about non-verbals, about adding some particular words into your language that are probably quite easy for teachers to hold on to and to apply almost immediately in their classrooms. Yeah, that's that's the whole point for me. So when people ask me, you know, why do you advocate for this restorative approach? What, why, why is that, you know, your thing? And I'm always saying that it's for, for, because of the two things that I've gotten out of working that way. One is that I feel more effective. So my students learn more. They get through more of the curriculum. They learn more deeply. Um, they are easier to assess when I'm deploying some of this architecture and some of this language. And the second reason is that I'm less stressed. And I think the thing that stresses teachers most is going home and feeling that they did stuff today that didn't align with what they believe about working with young people. You know, got, they're in their own shame then. I did stuff that I don't want to be that person. You know, um, whereas my ability to work restoratively puts my practice really close to my beliefs, to my purpose. Um, and if I do get it wrong, I've got a way of reflecting on it. Just how do I get back to being firm and fair? You know, um, and I can make little adjustments. And that should be the purpose of reflection, to make an adjustment, not to judge ourselves as either good or bad teachers. 
And in restoring in restoring teaching, you talk not just about restorative practices actually, but that notion of restoring teaching as a profession. Mm-hmm. And when I hear you talk in the media, a lot of what you talk about is actually advocacy for teachers and school leaders to be trusted. And, and in your book, you say things like, you know, it's about restoring teaching, trust in teachers, teacher wellbeing, status of teachers. What's your take on where the teaching profession is now in terms of trust, status, well-being? Where, where are we at? Uh, how dire is it, Adam? It's a bit dark. Um, and I think it's because it's happened by stealth and it's something that was done by people outside the school community. So I'm often saying that when I ask people what's the, the thing that they think has changed the most in education in the last 30 years, um, I get a lot of varying answers. And then when I say, I think the biggest thing that's changed in the last 30 years is that 30 years ago, if you got in trouble at school, you got in trouble twice. You know, um, and it's not about the trouble. It was about a really clear existing trust between home and school. You know, if they think you did the wrong thing, then I think you did the wrong thing. You know, um, so there was really clear and inherent trust in the relationship. And unfortunately, I think it's a, a media-driven phenomena that... Um, through only highlighting conflict and difficulties between home and school, that we've kind of learned to be adversarial and learned to try to win. So if a child goes home from school now, having been had to be confronted by a poor choice at school, then the compulsion is not to say, oh, well, I trust the school. The compulsion is to come down to the school and try and get your way. And we've been conditioned to do that. And, And teachers didn't decide you know, um, it'd be easier to educate these kids if the parents didn't trust us. Uh, the parents didn't decide, let's just stop trusting schools, that'll work. You know, um, we got conditioned around it. So changing that is kind of a, a one school at a time job, you know, and it's to step into broadcasting in the two areas that parents still send their kids to school as a priority for. They want us to be really good at teaching and learning. And so we need to broadcast through our newsletters, through our social media, through our assemblies, through short messages from teachers and class letters and things like that to parents, how amazing we are at that stuff and the, and the, grant and the, the gains that we make. The other thing that parents send their kids to school for is, is they'll call it things like social skilling, you know, and I say, it, I reckon it's citizen building. I reckon they're hoping that the school will work with them to help turn their kid into a functioning citizen. And we need to start to tell parents how awesome we are at that. Um, And when we get those results, when we broadcast them, that's when they can trust us as much as they trust a doctor who you wouldn't argue with, as much as they trust a plumber who you wouldn't argue with if they wanted to fix your toilet. You wouldn't say, no, you're going to do it this way. That's not right. That's not fair. You You wouldn't argue with them. Why? Because the trust of their expertise is high. We need to step back into telling people how amazing we are in the areas that people want us to be experts at. But everyone's been to school, Adam. That's they it. how they work. Well, I mean, and that's where I, I'm often pointing out that if that was the truth, if just going to school made you an expert on a school, then just using a toilet would make you a plumber. <laughs> and so we need to flip that whole mentality by stopping schools being masters of everything you know, and every teacher will tell you they feel like they wear too many hats. We need to throw some hats away and we need to say we wear two, teaching and learning, citizen building. Anything else you want to argue about, couldn't care less. So for you it's about schools and educators taking charge of their own narratives and speaking that back out into their communities? Yeah, we're one school that we work with who 
we worked for three years and changed everything. It was awesome. You know, so much awesome results in terms of student learning outcomes, student wellbeing outcomes, teacher wellbeing outcomes, teacher retention. Everything was fabulous except the parent perception data was flatlined. Mm. And we talked, how could they not have noticed? And the truth was we weren't telling them. So we revamped the school's newsletter. We took the two words off the top that are at the top of most Australian school newsletters, principal's report, because who has read the headline? You don't like a principal's report? Who has read the words principal's report and thought, great, I'd love to read on now? <laughs> and and we, we just started writing it like it was a newspaper headline. So our school has imp- our school's year five NAPLAN reading results went up by 10%. This is how we did it. Our reports of bullying in the school have dropped by 30%. This is how we did it. And just celebrate and speak to the expertise and the achievements around those two key areas, you know, teaching and learning and citizen building. 12 months later, parent perception data through the roof. We'd done nothing different <laughs> apart from the newsletter. So let, letting people know what it was that was, and sort of that, so there's a parent education piece to that as well, where you're helping parents to understand what it is that the school's doing and why they're doing that. Yep. And they want to know that they're still the two things that parents send their kids to school for. They've just been tricked into arguing with us about other things. Yeah. You know, so um, speak into that stuff and we can really get some, some wonderful trust starts to get rebuilt. And in your book, Real Questions for Real School Leaders, you challenge leaders to ask themselves questions to inform their work. What are some of the key questions that sh- school leaders should be asking themse- of themselves and their schools? And real questions is, is designed to, there's sort of like the, the questions are almost a little bit superficial and a bit funny in times, but there's a kind of a moral behind every question. I think there's a uh, hundred, is there in the book? There's a hundred in the book, yeah. And so some of our schools just use them as a an exit ticket again for like a leadership meeting. You know, we might ask ourselves, for instance, um, are our students happier to arrive at school than to leave? And what's that all about? You know, um, I know a fabulous principal that I worked with in the Northern Territory who said that's how he measures his entire school is he watches this, he does yard duty at the start and the end of every day and he watches whether the kids are happy to, happier to arrive than to leave. And his job is obviously wants them to be happier on arrival. <laughs> you know, he wants them to be really delighted to show up that day at school and a little bit, ah, oh, bugger, the day's finished as they, as they leave. And that's about creating positive affect because in positive affect they learn better. It's also interesting because it's about knowing your own measures of success. So if your measure of success is student happiness, how do you know? How do you know what that is? How do you see that? So he's found a way to find an indication of uh, how students are feeling about school. So I think the one thing for principals and for the school leaders is that there's so much accountability and compliance there's so much, so many ways in which they're told that yeah. they need to measure success. But what you're also talking about there is school leaders taking on for themselves their own real knowledge of purpose and value and thinking about how will I know in my school that these important things are happening, maybe not things people are asking me to look at or look for, but things that I know are important for, for this school community and when I know that I'm doing a good job and that our school's providing the best care for the students that we have. It is a funny thing, isn't it, that we get appointed to a principal because of our immense educational expertise. And then when we land, we start letting everybody else tell us how we need to measure our success. So as principals, I think that we need to do a little bit more of trusting our intuition around that. And I I refer to intuition as being a propensity to use our wisdom to challenge convention and tradition. So I don't don't have to measure my success with that ruler. I, I can actually choose or I could actually develop a measure uh, that is contextually relevant and respectful, and I'm going to run it and see what I find out. And I think that 
what, why should principals do that? Because they're principals. They've been trusted, you know, with that. I'm going to say there's only two moments in my life, Deb, that I felt ber- completely bereft. And they are one when I was made a parent, like, wow, I got trusted with a human, <laughs> you know, keep this alive, you know. Um, and the other was when I was trusted with a school. Right. And you have to do a bit of why me. And there is an immense sense of responsibility that you have all of those people in your care and sometimes they they have conflicting needs and they're still all in your care. Yeah, that's right. But you've been put there because you can handle that complexity. Um, you haven't been put there so that you can stick your head up and look at what either your department or what a school down the road is doing and just drag it in and plonk it there and say that's good enough. I'd love our principals to kind of feel permission to be able to, sure, there's, there's always compliance stuff, but to put as least energy as they possibly can into complying and to put more of their energy into small, distinct shifts that can have a high return on, on the effort that, that they need to provide them with to give them a chance. You've talked about intuition. I've certainly been thinking recently, I, uh, a chapter I wrote recently was around this idea of wayfinding leadership and working as a school leader in the pandemics made me think about the fact that you need to balance, you know, clarity, of communication and of purpose and systematization with intuition, responsiveness, empathy, compassion. Uh, and I know you've been thinking a bit about the notion of heroism in leadership and maybe changing your view a little bit on what it means to be heroic maybe now. What's your thinking at the moment around what does a leader need to be? I did a bit of looking at that that old Joseph Campbell model of the hero's journey and um, and then sort of overlaid that onto the last you know, couple of years of a pandemic and what that's what that's been for principles. And there's kind of this you know, beginning place where everything's fine. Um, it's not perfect, but it's fine. And then ordeals come. And I think there was a moment where we kind of rejected it and we went, no, nah, no, nah, nah, surely not remote learning. Surely not. That's not going to happen. You know? um, and then we just kind of had to take up the challenge. And we get into this, you know, challenge and trials and tribulations. And through trial and tribulation and getting through it, there's often a what what Campbell refers to as an elixir, something that comes out of it. You say, you know what, I if it wasn't for the trial and the tribulation, I wouldn't know this. And I think that the lesson that I'm hearing and that's that's resonating most with principles that I speak to is that the elixir is that it was the people all along. It wasn't the it wasn't the data. It wasn't the compliances. It wasn't the administration. It wasn't all of the little systems and structures that were keeping my school afloat. It was the people and their well being and their and and am I creating an environment that kind of tilts the odds in favour of people winning and thriving and achieving? And so I think that's the the lesson that an heroic principle can take from the pandemic is to know that and to then kind of so what now what as we try to emerge from it to say how would I not just go and recreate that perfect world that existed a couple of years ago but how could I take this elixir and make it real you know make it make it shared as we as we move into a post-pandemic phase that's a really cool concept to, to have conversation with principals about they come up with some amazing stuff And I think there's a balance between knowing that perhaps we can't go back to the before, wondering how we might reimagine and do things better with what we've learned, but also an immense gratitude from staff in schools and students in schools when we do get to be in the place together. 
there's been a lot of, I think, remote learning. There's a lot of flexi learning, hybrid learning, days when students get to be home. There's lots of possibilities. But I think the on-site, face-to-face aspect, uh, I think we realised actually that's something we're not really willing to give up. Yeah, and I think that goes to that very notion, doesn't it, that it was the people all along. It's the connection thing. It's the, you know, there was a study that I saw a while back of what do people report as their most powerful learning experience of their life. And the most common response is learning to ride a bike. And it's to do with that moment where a parent has helped you through the risk of, you know, being, of scraping your knee. And and it's the moment where they're running along path beside you and you think they've still got hold of the seat, but they don't. And it's as you go off, that that's the most powerful and exciting bit. It's always between people. It's and always... The, the realisation, that empowerment that you realise it was actually you're doing it and, you, and you, you're, you've now got it. Yeah, awesome. You've got this now, yeah. Well, we're coming to the end of our time together, so I'm going to move to the round that I call the enlightening round, our final five questions. Yes. Uh, and the first one is what's something unexpected that people might not know about you? I think that I, this actually stumped me for a bit, Deb. I was like, you know, where am I going to go with this? The thing that tends to freak people out the most about me that they don't know is that I have two completely different sized feet. So I've got one, I'm, I'm six foot four, I'm a pretty big guy, and um, I've got one foot that's size 14 and one foot that's 12 and a half. Wow. And I know, it's, you know, so I met a podiatrist once that said they have the feet of Frankenstein, just two completely different people. So I have to wear orthotics and um, when I do take the shoes off and show people, that tends to be unexpected. Unexpected. Well, we all know that you're, you're a Tigers supporter, so we won't talk about that. I am, but that's probably expected. That's, that's expected, I'd say. You talk about that a little bit. Um, <laughs> and what's something that's currently on your desk? So I keep on my desk a little – I had recently, like, I, it's, this isn't kind of my thing, but I went into a – a friend took me into a, a crystal shop mm-hmm. um, and there was a healer there who did, a, like, a reading on me and she looked me dead in the eye and told me that you worry too much, don't you? And she's right, I do. I'm a bit of a worrier. And so she gave me a little um, amethyst. So amethyst is supposed to calm the mind and help me to be able to just relax and to not get so focused or worried about outcomes, which is odd because I tell teachers, don't worry about the outcome, just get the process right and everything will be fine. So, yeah, I keep a little amethyst crystal on my, on my desk and it's just a little reminder, don't worry about it. And have you worried less? I think so. I, I, cause, and not, I don't think it's the crystal. I think it's seeing the crystal that makes me go, all right, just... The, me- the mental reminder to um, to worry less. I think that's a hard one. I think certainly like, if I think yeah. it's a whole other conversation about well-being of educators, principals, school leaders and, and the sort of um, the worrying, the anxiety and the health impacts of all of that. But I think if an amethyst can at least make you take a moment to remember oh. not to worry about everything, that's probably a good thing. Yep. And who is someone that inspires you in the work that you do? With that one, I, I think sometimes we look outside to like really – influential or well-known influences but it was only last week that I um like my last I guess sometimes I say day job was to open a large new urban primary school in Darwin and that I still like I adore my work at real schools but I still kind of look back on that as being really sort of seminal stuff it was you know almost life's work was being entrusted with starting a school and so the person that came to mind there was Anna Maria Zuffo who's doing exactly the same thing in Canberra at the moment and I was I was with them over the last couple of weeks before this recording today helping them get that going and seeing the smelling the plaster dust of an unfinished school and trying to get grass in on the oval and 
it's such a challenge logistically, philosophically, in terms of our pedagogy, architecture. It's enormous. And I admire and am inspired by anyone who will take that on. You know, that's that's real educational leadership for me. Yeah. Starting with the, the dust and building something from there. Oh, the, the joy and the horror of the blank landscape. Yeah. <laughs> the joy and the horror. I've heard a few people talk about opening schools and that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, incredibly challenging and incredibly rewarding. Yeah. So what's something that you've got coming up then that you are excited about? This is the obvious one, Deb. It's going back to the footy. Yeah, so um, it's the one thing, going to the footy, and I, as you mentioned, I love my Tigers in the AFL, but it's the one thing that my family, and I've got the stereotypical nuclear family of my wife and a, a son and a daughter, it's the one thing that not one person knocks back. Every Most of the things I suggest in my family are seen by the teenagers as being lame. But if I say, hey, do you want to go to the footy tomorrow? It's all right. Or it's always, yeah, okay. So it's, my, it's the family outing that everyone wants to do and I just can't wait to being based in Melbourne to get back to the MCG and watch the Tigers play. Oh, it sounds wonderful. I still remember my, the first game I saw at the MCG. It was uh, Collingwood West Coast and yeah. we lost. You did have a good win against Collingwood at the MCG a few years ago. So. Mm. <laughs> so finally, if you were to distill your current thinking around education and the work that you're doing down into its essence, what's one thought or resource that you would leave listeners with? I actually wrote about this this week and I, I, I've spoken to a few people and I gave the advice to Anna Maria's school at Throsby um, that I was to sort of bring it down to what I really want you to kind of keep in your head at the moment for educators. Number one, there was one bit of advice, one bit of encouragement. And the advice is don't wish time away. So these difficult days of the pandemic and the way that it's affecting people, is it's just fat with stories and learning and weird stuff that we're going to be talking about in decades to come, soak it up. This is not, don't don't just try and get through the first week of school or the first term or just get through this year. Enjoy it. You know, make the most of it would be the advice I would give. And the encouragement is that, and this goes back to what we were discussing about principles and perhaps not trusting our intuition, is that even if there are stories out there about schools and, te- and, and parents in conflict, and even if there's a lot of criticism publicly about educators and schools and what's being done in schools i just hope that people can be encouraged by knowing they whatever's coming in the next year or two for us in australian schools they've got this they really do i haven't met one school where i would say these are not people who are really well placed to handle this and to support these families both socially as well as from a learning perspective through some pretty tricky waters our, our education workforce are incredible and they should be confident that whatever's to come, they've got it. They're fine. So trusting those working in schools, but also I think importantly, if you're working in schools and if you're leading in schools, not to be, not to feel like the challenges are getting in the way of the work, but actually at the moment, this is the work. Embrace it. Enjoy it. I know it's a bit weird, but just like, yeah, I just, I would believe that every mistake I've ever made as a teacher, but if, once I've learned from it, it's just a funny story. Yeah, and we it takes a while of, sometimes for it to be a funny story, but it gets there in the end. We've got a lot of funny stories being generated at the moment. That's all they are. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Adam, for joining me today on the Edgy Salon. Good fun. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Edgy Salon podcast. You can join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your network by giving this podcast a rating or review and by connecting with Deb and her guests on social media.